Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. What do you see? The howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. Just try. He's right there. What do you see? What's there, Karen? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods. In this primal, sensuous, secret place lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Tonight I'm going to show you something. Make you believe. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Howling from 1981. The studio was Embassy Pictures. Release date was March 13, 1981. The running time, 91 minutes, and it was rated R. The budget was $1.5 million, and it took in almost $18 million, making it the 41st-ranked movie of 1981. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 70% fresh from 33 reviews. Their critics' consensus is, The Howling packs enough laughs into its lycanthropic carnage to distinguish it from other werewolf entries, with impressive visual effects adding some bite. Alright, Roger Ebert at the time gave it 2 out of 4 stars, and normally I read Ebert's review, but this one just won't come off as funny when I actually just try to read it. Ebert kind of got cute with this one, acting almost like a kitty show host interviewing a sock puppet about a new werewolf film. And uh, if you want to go read it, you can go read it for yourself on his website. But he did give it two out of four stars. I'm pretty sure I first saw an edited version of The Howling on TV when I was a kid. I love classic monster movies, as you know. And The Wolfman was always one of my favorites, and I don't think I saw the uncut version of The Howling until I was a teenager at a friend's house who had cable. And definitely, it's a better viewing experience on cable, especially for a few scenes, as you'll hear about later. Alright, let's get into the main cast. Well, it's pretty much D. Wallace, who plays Karen White, and Wallace will forever be known to me and many others as the mom of the kids who take care of E.T. from 1982. So when I first saw The Howling, I was amused that she was the damsel in distress rather than a mom. But that's the great thing about movies, but it's often confusing when you're growing up as a kid. You know, how could this person be in one film and completely different in another? And little did I know that she was in other horror films as well. So Wallace started her career on TV shows, though her film debut was the horror classic The Hills Have Eyes from 1977. She would continue to mostly be on TV, but would have a character role as Mary Lewis in the 1979 movie 10 with Dudley Moore and Julie Andrews and, of course, Bo Derek. The Howling would be the next film, 
And she would continue to rise in popularity, of course, with E.T. And she continued to work steadily and still does today on TV and film. Also, there are many great character actors in The Howling, which I'll cover throughout the episode. The director, Joe Dante, and this was only Dante's second major film, with his first being the 1978 cult classic Piranha. His biggest film by far would come three years later with 1984's Gremlins. Alright, let's get into the making of the film. So The Howling was based on the novel of the same name, and producer Mike Fennell knew another producer named Dan Blatt who had worked for Roger Corman's company, Avco Embassy, and he was working on the film adaptation of The Howling. There hadn't been a werewolf movie done in a while, and so they felt that this type of film could be you know, viable commercially if done right. I don't think they realized that American Werewolf in London was also being filmed around the same time. So a director named Jack Conrad had optioned the rights to the book and wrote a screenplay of his own. The production company had creative differences with Conrad, and so he was out as director, but he did get producer credits in the final film credits of The Howling. So Joe Dante was the first choice to replace Conrad as the director by the producers. Now, Dante was, at the time, working on a Jaws sequel called Jaws 3 People Zero, (laughs) and then he dropped that for The Howling. Uh, I bet that Jaws would have been much better than 3D uh, that came out in 1982 if Joe Dante had directed it. So Dante's first order of business was to have the screenplay of The Howling rewritten. They brought in a screenwriter named Terrence Winkless, who was still pretty faithful to the novel at the time. Finally, the producers and Dante said, just forget the book and start from scratch. No pun intended. (laughs) Screenwriter John Sales was then brought in to write the new script, as he had worked with Dante on Piranha. They decided to keep the premise of the werewolf tale, but that's pretty much it. And Sales was also writing the script for Alligator at the time as well. So as a psychology major, Sales took his background and added a psychology angle to the werewolf tale, which made The Howling unique to other films. And also, the plot had minor digs at the self-help gurus of that era. He also posed the question of what would happen if these shapeshifters were allowed to have no repression whatsoever. The commentary is subtle in the film, but it's really well done. Interestingly enough, the lore and the so-called rules of werewolves came from the original monster movies. So there is a certain structure you have to follow because that's what audiences know and expect. And Dante had great insight about all of these past werewolf movies and how they were made. And the lore is always based on how large or small the film's budget is. So, you know, what can they put into the film? Joe Dante was a huge fan of Roger Corman and worked with him like many other aspiring directors. Think of Ron Howard. And he taught his protégés to work fast and cheap. And this is how Dante broke into the business. He had a very small budget film. It was $60,000. And and then Dante made the cult classic, as I mentioned before, Piranha in 1978, which is essentially a parody of Jaws and the classic sci-fi films. Dante says that Dee Wallace was the first real actress he worked with because she was very serious about her craft. And Wallace took sort of a method acting approach on The Howling. She was basically living like her character for six weeks, thinking that werewolves were real. However, she'd get so wrapped up in the moment, it would sometimes take her a while to get back down to earth. (laughs) But this definitely brought a realism and greatness to her performance in the film, and you'll notice it. Dee Wallace was the one who suggested Christopher Stone to play her husband, and he nailed the audition. Well, as it turned out, they were married in real life, which initially made Joe Dante hesitant since he thought they'd gang up on him on set for decision-making. But it worked out great, of course. And Wallace and Stone remained married until his sudden death in 1995 at the age of 53 due to a heart attack. 
So Joe Dante is very loyal to the people he works with, much like Adam Sandler, and he tends to use the same people in his film, Dick Miller being the obvious one, but also Belinda Belaski, who plays Terry in the movie, and he also has a great character actor, Kevin McCarthy. The set designer on The Howling was the same guy who did the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which leads to the queasiness of some of the sets, especially in the woods. Also, the use of colors are really well done, especially for, you know, a dark horror film. Most of the character names were based on real directors who made werewolf films in the past, like George Wagner, who directed the original Wolfman in 1941. And the designs of how the wolves look were based on very old drawings from stories years and years ago where they truly looked animal-like, and they kind of walked on their hind legs of sorts. There were also going to be flying werewolves that were rocket-propelled. However, you could see the smoke trail coming from the wolf's ass, so that was nixed. Part of the reason for the film's success, besides being a good film, was the great marketing campaign. For example, the movie poster is just awesome. You know, you have these long claw marks ripping through the cloth as you could see a woman's nose and mouth screaming from behind. It was suggestive without being obvious that it's a monster movie. And actually, some might have thought it was a slasher film, which was very popular in the early 80s. So people checked it out without really knowing what it was about. That was very smart. After the success of the film, seven sequels were made. None of them, of course, matched the quality of the original, nor had Joe Dante involved. All right, let's get into the film. So it begins with a simple title card, but initially you see up close clawing and scratching before the camera pans out and says the howling. The title card then explodes. The opening card was originally just done for the trailer, but it works so well that they actually put it into the actual film opening. The movie opens on a television studio set as a local news program is filming in Los Angeles. So Karen White, that's Dee Wallace, as a news anchor is being stalked by a serial killer named Eddie Quist, played by Robert Picardo. Karen is working with the police to try to catch Eddie, but this involves her risking her life by agreeing to meet with him, though the police will be tailing her, but you always know how that goes. We see her co-anchor, played by James McCrell, going over a script in the bathroom. By the way, you might remember McCrell. He's best known for another werewolf movie, playing Vice Principal Thorne in Teen Wolf with Michael J. Fox. Weeks ago, when Update News reporter Karen White began receiving calls from a mysterious stranger who identified himself only as Eddie, the KDHB News Team... Now, now, the KDHB News Team began working... The KDHB News Team began working with local police to link Eddie with a recent string of fate. Ah, Bill. That's a... That's a brave little old girl you got there. <clears throat> Tonight, at an act of courage we here at KDHB are all very proud of. Good evening. Hey, Terry, how are you? Good, how's it going? Oh, I'm gonna need just a few more minutes. Jesus, there's a guy standing right outside the booth now. I don't know if it's him or not. Lieutenant Chance, Detective Klein. This is uh, Karen's husband. Oh, you've got quite a brave young lady there, Mr. White. And uh, Neil. Bill Neal. My wife uses her maiden name. Hi. Bill Neal. Yeah. Stanford, right? Yeah. So how is it going? Oh, this guy is. I've got a clean word from this uh, Karen. This is Dr. Neal. Minutes. 15 minutes. Well, hold on, hold on. She's transmitting. Why 
So a nice little fun fact. The man waiting to use the phone booth after Karen was none other than Roger Corman. He checks the change slot in the phone, which was kind of an inside joke as Corman was known for his low-budget films and was always trying to save money. So back to the film, Karen is to meet Eddie at an adult bookstore. As you can imagine, Karen is nervous and the only woman in this joint. This wasn't really acting for Dee Walls, as she was really nervous and anxious and creeped out walking through this real adult bookstore that she really didn't want to look at anything. She really couldn't wait to get out of there. Karen goes to one of the back booths, which is playing a porn film. She sits down and a man puts some change to start the film. Eddie won't allow Karen to look at him and makes her watch the film. The film wasn't a real porn film, but it was shot by Joe Dante and the crew, and they kind of scratch it up to look like an old porn theater type film. The police, in the meantime, have lost Karen, and they're frantically trying to find her, as you can imagine. Karen's husband, Bill, Christopher Stone, is stir-crazy waiting at the TV station while his wife is in danger. Eddie finally tells Karen to turn around, and she's so terrified she can't even scream. At the same time, two police officers show up and discover she's in the bookstore and hear some noises coming from the back rooms. They end up shooting Eddie dead, but we never actually see him. Karen, of course, is traumatized and isn't quite sure what she saw. Karen's friends who work at the station, Chris, who's played by Dennis Dugan, and Terry, Belinda Belaski, decide to investigate the house Eddie lived in, and they find various articles about crimes and drawings of werewolves hanging on the wall, along with drawings of Karen. Karen decides to go back on the air to give her story the next day about the killing of Eddie. She's continuing to have nightmares about that night, but the general manager, Fred Francis, played by Kevin McCarthy, hey, UHF, is pushing back, you know, pushing her to get back on the air because she, he wants a ratings bonanza. Unfortunately, Karen freezes when the camera cuts to her segment and she has flashbacks to sitting at the adult bookstore with the flickering lights of the porn film. They quickly cut to the other anchor to finish the segment. Terry and Chris take Karen off set, and Francis has very little sympathy for Karen. He's muttering she's probably pregnant before calling to get another anchor ready for the 11 o'clock show. Karen meets with a therapist named Dr. George Wagner, (laughs) Patrick McNee, to talk about what she's going through, and the doctor recommends that Karen and Bill go on a retreat of sorts at a place called The Colony. Dr. Wagner sends many of his patients to The Colony to receive treatment and to recharge their batteries, so to speak. Well, Bill and Karen arrive that night at the colony, and it looks like a summer barbecue. Karen, unfortunately, is sort of a local celebrity, and she gets noticed immediately, which is uncomfortable for her, as you can imagine. And there are all sorts of interesting character actors at the colony, like Noble Willingham, who played CD from Walker, Texas Ranger, and John Carradine, who starred in many classic horror films. Most of the people at the colony are friendly, but there are some strange ones, especially the exotic-looking Marcia, played by Elizabeth Brooks, and her inbred-looking brother. <laughs> Marsha makes her presence known immediately by coming on strong to Bill before he decides to move along. And according to Donna, who befriends Karen, Marsha is a nymphomaniac. 
The doctor dismisses this claim, saying she's just a free spirit of sorts. That night, Karen is awakened by the sounds of howling, along with noises outside of their cabin. Karen finds nothing, but it's actually Marsha's brother hiding in the bushes. The next day, we get to meet the local sheriff, Sam Newfield, played by Slim Pickens, who recognized Karen as well. Sam downplays what Karen heard the night before with the howling and says it was probably just coyotes. We go back to Los Angeles, and Chris and Terry are at the morgue to look at the body of Eddie, only to find that that's not the case he was put in, and there are multiple dents and scratches on the door where it looked like someone kicked at it. So nobody what's going on, knows what's going on. He's not in the morgue, but the viewer pretty much can assume that Eddie is not human. Karen and Donna are now hanging out that night, and Karen hears noises again. Donna says it's just cows, but Karen insists that's not what cows sound like. So they go out to the woods looking for that noise, only to find a decapitated cow head. The next day, a group of men from the colony decide to go out hunting for whatever is killing the cows, and Bill ends up killing a rabbit. So, of course, one of Joe Dante's go-to characters in all of his films is the great Dick Miller, and in The Howling, he plays a small bookshop owner who gives Terry and Chris a book about warlocks, werewolves, and demons. Please, you're going to purchase, purchase. Not leave him alone. You're going to greasy. We'll find out if any of Eddie's killings were on a full moon. Hey, that's a lot of Hollywood baloney. Your classic werewolf can change shape any time it wants, day and night, whenever it takes a notion to. That's why I call them shapeshifters. I got a dozen books on it. What about killing it with silver bullets? Well, sure. Silver bullets are fire. It's the only way to get rid of the damn things. They're worse than cockroaches. They come back from the dead if you don't kill them right. Plus, they regenerate. You know what that is? Cut off an arm, cut off a leg, stick a knife in a heart, nothing. They may look dead, but bam, three days later, they're as good as new. Do you believe in this? <laughs> what am I, an idiot? I'm making a buck here. You want books? I got books. I got chicken blood. I got dog embryos. I got black candles. I got wolf paint. Look at this. Silver bullets. Some joker ordered them. 3006. Never picked them up. I take Bank America, American Express, Visa. You gonna buy that or what? So the great part about the last scene with Dick Miller is that it allows the howling to get rid of some of the full moon rules and establish that existing werewolves could shapeshift at will. Okay, so here are some of the werewolf rules for the howling. Yes, if you are bitten by a werewolf, you will turn into one, but you can still suppress it and fight it. The way to kill them is either with silver bullets or fire, which was part of the standard lore. A regular bullet would not kill them. Amazingly, Dick Miller said this small role in The Howling was still one of his favorite roles of any of, any of his many films. In a nod to both Miller and Roger Corman, Miller's character name is Walter Paisley, which is the same name of Miller's character in Bucket of Blood from 1959. According to Joe Dante, Dick Miller is his good luck charm, and that's why he appears in all of his films. So we go back to the colony, and Bill continues to hunt wolves, but gets more than he bargains for with Marcia and another rabid animal in the woods. Do you see any wolves? Nope. There's lots of rabbits. What do you do with these things? Eat them. Oh. My sister will uh, cook it up for you if you want. No, I try to stay away from meat. Your wife might like it. You kill something you don't eat, now that's a sin. Yeah, well, I never thought of it like that. The place just over there. My sister would be glad to cook it up for you. Are you sure? Marcia just loves to cook. Okay. Are you sure?
Uh, how long will it take? I'll cook it later. so fast I didn't even see what it was. Jesus, Doc, is that necessary? Can't take any chances. God. I want to go home. I wouldn't advise traveling right now. A bite like that can be pretty serious. <sighs> yes, that's the sign of the werewolf. That's just a legend, though, isn't it? Yes, but like most legends, it must have some basis in fact. Probably an ancient explanation of the dual personality in each of us. How does it go? Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms. And the autumn moon is bright. Uh, you're, you're reading. I'll get it. He's calling you at 11 tomorrow. Oh, I remember. No, it's, it's my phone. I'll get it. I'll get it. At night. I'll get it. I'll get it. You want me to get it? You get it. Hello? There's no crime in that. Karen. No, we're still up. You think I don't what? know the difference between a wolf and a man? You're kidding me. No, listen, we'll come right up, okay? We'll be right up. Just calm down. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. What is it? Bill just got bitten by a wolf. Terry drives up to the colony without Chris, who says he'll be the, up there in a day or so. Terry brings some food for Karen, but forgot to bring veggies for Bill, who is a vegetarian. However, he doesn't seem to mind, and he's eating a turkey leg with great delight. Hmm, how strange. That night, Bill and Karen fall asleep, and later Karen wakes up from a nightmare to discover Bill isn't in bed. He's actually wandering in the woods, almost in a trance. And he then meets with Marcia, and then they have sex in the woods. For those interested, and I definitely was when I saw this on cable as a teenager, yes, you see Elizabeth Brooks, that's Marsha, fully nude. And she looks terrific, by the way. It's the 80s. Come on. Of course you're going to see some nudity. 
Now, Elizabeth Brooks later said she didn't realize that she was going to be shown fully nude because the script implied that most of her body would be covered by the shots of the campfire. So while having sex, Bill and Marsha both transform into werewolves. The special effects aren't bad until they pan to a farther shot of them on top of each other and then it sort of looks like a 1950s cartoon. (laughs) It sort of reminds me of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein when Dracula morphs into the bat. So Terry is continuing to investigate the strange things going on at the Collie and notices that one of the drawings she found at Eddie's apartment is the same landscape drawing at the Colony by the Ocean. So she decides to head back to her cabin, but gets lost in the woods and stumbles upon a cabin, which has a lot of the same articles and drawings as Eddie's house in L.A. All of a sudden, Terry is attacked by a werewolf in the cabin. She ends up fighting him off when she hides underneath the house. And while she's doing this, she chops off the werewolf's arm with an axe, and we get to see the severed arm turn back into a human arm. The special effects here look great. Terry races through the woods trying to get away and finds the office for Dr. Wagner and calls Chris. Back at the cabin of Bill and Karen, Karen notices large scratch marks on Bill's back. She asks him about that and says they were from a wolf attack, and Karen doesn't believe him and accuses him of probably sleeping with Marcia. So then Bill lashes out and slaps Karen. Karen says she's going to Terry's and tells Bill he can do whatever he wants. Back at the office, Terry is on the phone with Chris and believes that Eddie is not dead and probably a werewolf. Terry searches the files of Dr. Wagner for Eddie Quist. She discovers that Marsha and Eddie have the same last name. And then... County Sheriff's Department, quick! Now, now don't bother. Look, I'll get a hold of the state boys and we'll meet you over at the center. Now, I wouldn't worry, Mr. Holland. I'm sure she's safe. Yep, Terry's a goner. The shot of seeing the full-body werewolf was actually done after the initial filming was completed. Joe Dante and the producers went to the studios and asked for more money to get a full werewolf suit since the original models were piecemeals. The studio agreed to pony up more cash and then the final version you see as the outcome finally came out, which is a great scene. 
In the meantime, Chris returns to the bookstore to pick up an arsenal of silver bullets, not knowing that Terry is dead. However, Karen goes to Dr. Wagner's office to talk about what happened with her and Bill, only to find Terry's body with her neck torn to shreds. Then Karen turns her back to make a phone call, and which goes back to Terry's body, which was covered in a sheet. A corpse-looking Eddie pops up. Glad you came. I wanted to see you again. I saw you die. You said on the phone that you wanted to get to know me. But here I am, Karen. Look at me. I want to give you a piece of my mind. I trusted you, Karen. So the big transformation scene lasts about two minutes where you get to see all of the special effects and all their glory as Eddie rips off part of his flesh on his face and to transform into a werewolf. This is the payoff you're always waiting for during werewolf movies because you get full of, you know, you get bubbling skin, growing hair, and extending fingernails as he transforms. So Robert Picardo actually improv the line, I want to give you a piece of my mind before pulling out a bullet from his head. This transformation scene was a must for the producers making the film. The main transformation scene had to be awesome. Dante wanted to do the transformation differently in the sense that, you know, he didn't want to use the traditional dissolves like in past werewolf films. So they ended up doing it mechanically so it looks more like real time. So the bubbling effect were bags that were placed underneath the latex skin mask. Those bags were actually condoms glued all over Robert Picardo's face. It is definitely movie magic with speeding up the film and then the sound effects. It's really, really well done. And much better than all the CGI bullshit of today. So Karen throws acid on Eddie, the werewolf, and she races away. All right, well, this is where the plot and the twist all come together, and I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen The Howling before. I've always enjoyed monster movies, as I said, and this was one of the better modern ones that I remember as a kid. The Howling really doesn't take itself too seriously, and it definitely adds humor when necessary, which is probably why it's still highly regarded today. Plus, if you add a bit of humor like Joe Dante always does in his films, the audiences let their guard down and can be scared easier. The film also works so well because the wolf scenes aren't overdone and you have, again, the lack of CGI. This film today would be completely different and frankly, I think it would be shit. It just wouldn't look the same and granted, yeah, does a werewolf look real? Yeah, no, I mean, it never does, but if you add CGI, it looks even more fake, in my opinion. I'd rather have an actual human creating the special effects it gives more of a touch that you know a human created this as opposed to clicking a few buttons all right so again i'm not giving spoilers however the final scene is so good that i have to play it and this is with karen giving her news report if you don't want to have the ending spoiled for you just skip ahead oh in about three and a half minutes and then i'll wrap it up fire that's burning out of control up the coast tonight firefighters have discovered the blaze seems to have started at the colony 
an experimental living community founded by author and behavior expert Dr. George West. She's ready. How's she look? She look all right to you? Reports so far indicate that bodies have been discovered both inside and outside the colony building. Into a single? Many of them burned beyond recognition. And what authorities on the scene are calling a Guyana-like spectacle. Now for an exclusive eyewitness report on the incident, we welcome back... She shows any sign of freezing like the last time the right commercial. Karen? Take one. Good evening. From the day we're born, there is a battle we must fight. A struggle between what is kind and peaceful in our natures and what is cruel and violent. What the hell is this, an editorial? That choice is our birthright as human beings and the real gift that differentiates us from the animals. It is as natural to us as the air we Did breathe. Did you pass this material? She's not ready for the prompter. All of us take it for granted. We changed it a little. But now for some of us, that choice has been taken away. A secret society exists and is living among all of us. They're neither people nor animals, but something <laughs> in between. Monstrous mutations whose violent natures Ready, one? Take one. must be satisfied. I know what you're thinking because I've been where you are. That's enough. Leave and it. it's possible Leave to it. imagine. Leave it! Cut! Leave it! But I have proof, and tonight I'm going to sh show you something. Make you believe. Special effects these days. Did you see the one about the guy in the spaceship? It was real. He turned into a werewolf and they shot him. You're plastic. Doesn't mean it wasn't real. Hey, Ernie, put a pepper steak on for me, will you? And a hamburger for the lady. How do you want that? How do you want it, honey? Rare. Yep, that's Marsha's voice at the end. And then the final frame after seeing the credits over a grilled hamburger is from the original Wolfman from 1941. All right, some fun facts. Here are the differences, and there are a lot, between the original novel and the film. So in the novel, Karen's husband is named Roy, and neither Karen or Roy work in television. In the novel, Karen is raped by a man in her apartment. In the film, she is saved by the police before she is attacked by a werewolf in the adult bookstore. 
In the novel, Karen's psychiatrist is only briefly mentioned, but in the film, her psychiatrist is Dr. Wagner, who is a major character. Karen's rapist in the novel is named Max Quist, and he's an ex-con who has no involvement with the village of Drago or its inhabitants. In the film, Karen's attempted attacker is named Eddie Quist, and he's already affiliated with the colony before he meets Karen. Marcia Quist's name in the novel is Marcia Lura, a shopkeeper in Drago, and she has no relation to Max Quist. In the novel, Karen and Roy bring their pet dog with them to the village, which is killed later on. In the film, they have no dog. The werewolves in the novel are described as completely wolf-like, albeit larger. The werewolves of the film are more anthropomorphic and can walk on their hind legs, standing over seven feet tall. The werewolves in the novel are never seen in the daytime, suggesting they can only change at night. Now, the werewolves in the film can change at will at any time of the day and are seen in the daylight hours. In the novel, the character Chris Halloran is Roy's best friend. In the film, Chris works with Karen and Bill at the television station. And Karen's friend Terry, which is Chris's girlfriend, who also works at the station, is not featured in the novel at all. In the novel, Karen escapes from Drago physically unscathed but mentally traumatized and survives after being rescued by Chris Halloran. In the film, well, you heard it. (laughs) So special effects guru Rick Baker was originally going to work on The Howling, but ended up leaving to work on another werewolf film, as I mentioned earlier, American Werewolf in London. There were times during shooting where Robert Picardo was very despondent about the hours he had to spend in makeup, and he said, One day, after spending six and a half hours in the makeup chair, I was thinking, I was trained at Yale, two leading roles on Broadway, My first acting role in California, my face gets melted in a low-budget horror movie. And all the crew had to say to that was, Bob, next time read the script all the way through first (laughs) before accepting a job. All right, The Howling is great. I love monster movies. I love werewolf movies. You know, a lot of the modern-day stuff, again, what I said with the CGI, it it all looks the same. This is where it looks great. And also check out American Werewolf in London. And it just happened to come out in the same year. And also, Joe Dante films, as I mentioned, they have a humor to them, which works perfectly with the horror angle. And another person that loves horror films and loves The Howling is Joseph Staub, who you just heard on the Frankenstein episode. So he joins me to talk about The Howling. And also, I've appeared on a few of Joseph's podcasts, which are exclusively on YouTube. Uh, One was for James Bond with the great Ian Wadley. And hopefully those last two episodes come out soon because it's a four-parter. And then I just recorded not too long ago, and I have no idea when it's going to come out, but hopefully soon, uh, a John Wayne episode where we give our top 10 John Wayne films, which was difficult, with Joseph and the great Greg Barnes. And so we had a lot of fun talking about that. Greg is a huge John Wayne fan, and he definitely talks a lot about John Wayne, and he had ten tons of extras. I didn't have many extras, so I let Greg have mine. So how about that? All right. So I will be back next week with yet another random movie from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Joseph Staub. Welcome back, Joseph. Again, for having me, Brian. No problem. So we're going to talk about an early, well, it's not early, but it's an early film for Joe Dante. And it's a werewolf classic, dare I say. And it's The Howling from 1981. Before we actually get into The Howling, what is the first Joe Dante movie you saw? Gremlins. Okay, so you didn't see. When did you finally see like Piranha and 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 um, like Inner Space and The Burbs? So uh, those all came a lot later. I think Piranha was the first of those three. The Piranha was the first one I saw just after hearing the legends of how good but also hilarious that movie is. Right. Um. So then 
I, I kind of got into some of his later 80s work later, so like Inner Space and the Burbs later. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as the Howling, the Howling actually came pretty pretty early in my Dante career. It was probably the second one I saw after Gremlins. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, but even then, it was probably much later. <laughs> yeah, um, the, fir- the first yeah. one I saw was Explorers, because it was oh, right... Okay. Yeah, because those because they were younger kids, it was fun, it wasn't super scary. Um, yeah, so that was the, definitely the first one I saw. So we'll go into the, the Howling, and we know that you're you know the resident Universal Horror Movie guy, and so have you had you seen The Wolfman first, or did you see The Howling first? The Wolfman was definitely my first werewolf film I had seen. Mm-hmm. So you had the fo- the folklore, you you knew everything, and so how did you feel? How did you like the Howling's take on it? Because you have to follow certain guidelines when it yeah. comes to these types of films. And uh, I know it's probably going to be mentioned a lot throughout this uh, review. Nineteen eighty one was the year of the werewolf, right? So there's always going to be comparison between the Howling and American Werewolf in London. So it's 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 kind of interesting because they both have very different takes on the on the mythology. Um, the Howling is much more in line with the Universal Wolfman. I mean, to even the point where they use clips from that movie. That's right. Film. It's a two-legged werewolf instead of a four-legged werewolf like you would see in American Werewolf in London. It has the silver connection. It has a lot of the same mythology as Universal's Wolfman, which I really liked. I also really enjoyed how took it a different place almost. You get a lot more connected with a larger group of people. In The Wolfman, you're connected with Larry Talbot and mm-hmm. his very close circle of people, his father and his love interest. And that's about the. And then, of course, Bella Lugosi and his mother. Like right. That's, that's where you kind of. That's what you focus on in The Wolfman. In this, you are in sort of like a hippie commune. And you right. have a much larger group of people played by some very, very famous actors and actresses who did who are uh, you would know from roles that are very unlike this. Mm-hmm. So, like, you see Slim Pickens and you're like, you don't expect <laughs> him to come up teeth at the end of the movie. And you're like, that's right. There's so many. And then, like, John Carradine, who has the connection mm-hmm. to so many earlier universal, universal films and horror films in general. He was very well known in the horror genre. Right. And I think him and his performance in this movie really harken back to that universal, almost the Dwight Fry-esque character, mm-hmm. um, sort of like the the creepier character that's kind of quirky. And I really like that. I, I just I really enjoy this film. Well, the other nice connection is Kevin McCarthy. Even though he wasn't yes. in the the Universal horror films, he of course was in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is great. And I didn't know until actually, kind of doing research for the film, I had no idea D. Wallace and Christopher Stone were married. <laughs> I just didn't have a clue. Did so yeah. I actually started looking into this as well. I kind of I, yeah. I kind of found that really interesting, which you can totally see by the way they interact in, sure. in this film. It's very the chemistry between them is very good at the point of being very bad. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're, they're very too comfortable. At, they're, they're very good at having very bad chemistry. Right. They're almost too comfortable, you know, with each other. Yeah. And, and I, I think you, you said you have the shout factory version, right? Yes. Okay. So I, have you listened to the, um, the commentary yet? I have not because the version I have, I got in the seven, $7 Blu-ray bin at Walmart. It's uh-huh. actually, double feature of the fog and the howling okay so it has 
their transfer of the film, but none of the special features. Oh, bummer. Okay. Because that's... Was, yeah. Because one nice thing about the the actual Shout Factory uh, Howling commentary is you get both uh, Christopher Stone and D. Wallace on it because it was, it was before Christopher Stone passed away. So you get to hear both of their takes on it. And it's really interesting to hear that, which was I, was insightful. I definitely plan on getting the official releases for both of those films down the line. I just I saw that in. Oh, the yeah. Film. I was like, OK, two movies that I don't own mm-hmm. and I'm going to snatch them up because I know how. I'd seen both films and I loved both films, but I had never owned them. Mm-hmm. So I decided to just pick that up. And then eventually down the line, I want to get the official releases of both. This is just sure. a place in the collection for now. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I, the, the bonus features are, are really terrific on the howling as they are for almost all of shout That's, factories, yeah, shout factory bonus features and have those the official copies there. There were, I actually, I dare, dare I say they're the, best i mean criterion's great but usually it's like scholars on there whereas shout factor really gets the people involved with the film for the most part yeah. and it has a lot of interesting um like stuff involved with the film like the documentaries that they come up with mm-hmm. the the things that they find like just the, they just connect with people who have things related to the film so people who are on the film who had home movies or something like that mm-hmm. but they put those on the i, I really appreciate that sort of stuff Oh, I do, too. I think it's great, especially if you're a major film buff. That's that's what it's all about. So you since you brought it up. Which movie do you prefer? American Werewolf in London or The Howling? Ooh, it, it, it's it's tough, but I it is. Both of them have their strong suits. Both of them have a really interesting comedic element to them, which mm-hmm. I appreciate. Um, I, I think both of them have very strong performances. I definitely appreciate the transformation scenes in American Marvel in London a bit more. I think there's more put into them. Definitely. I, I think it's I think the fil- American Werewolf in American Werewolf in London is more about the transformation scenes than the howling is. Although the howling's transformation scene, uh, when Eddie is in the office and he transforms in front of Karen, that's still an amazing werewolf transformation yes. scene. Yes. Not 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 putting that down at all. It's still a great scene. Overall, I'd probably have to go with the howling. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I yeah, I totally agree. With you. I think that American Werewolf in London had bigger budget, um, but I think story wise, yeah, I, I kind of I enjoy the Howling a bit more. I love American Werewolf in London, but yeah, if I have to pick one, I think I'm going with you as well. And the bigger budget of American Werewolf in London was what lured Rick Baker to do the effects for that instead of this. That's right, exactly. And, and you can't I, blame I think, him. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm sure. And then that also led him to do the stuff for Thriller. Which yep. that definitely in the long run was better for him. So Absolutely. I can't blame him at all. Absolutely. So, yeah. So you brought up all the great guest stars in this movie. You brought up the humor. What are the things that really stood out for you, you know, watching this movie again? I'm, I'm assuming you didn't watch it not that long ago. Yeah, yeah I just watched it this past week. Um, OK. Some of what really stood out to me was really this time. It really stood out to me how the characters like the way they all come together at the end mm-hmm. when you sort of think, OK, uh, Marsh is definitely in on it. Mm-hmm. Eddie, of course, is in on it. TC's in on it. But you really aren't sure who all else is in on it. Right. You have a feeling that John Carradine's in on it because of the scene where he tries to throw himself in the fire, but they kind of play it off. You kind of hope the doctor's not in on it, but then... <laughs> and you're never really quite sure the full extent of how in on it the doctor is. That's like, right. Is he a werewolf because he never transforms... And all of that sort of stuff. It's I think it's really interesting. But some of the stuff that really stood out to me, like what I said, when they all come together at the end and you found out, well, 
all of them are in on it. Right. Everybody in this movie is in on it. And then, of course, the shock twist ending where you find out Karen was actually bitten by the werewolf. Right. Who actually was ended up being her, her husband that mm-hmm. had bit her, bitten her. And then uh, Chris is forced to shoot her. Right. Then also how the people at the bar just kind of play it off. <laughs> right. And then you get the great, um, you know, the other werewolf, is, you know, <laughs> the, the vamp at the end, yeah. like watching the hamburger. So. Mm-hmm. Which is, yeah, it's a great twist because usually uh, some of these films have ominous endings. It was almost like they set it up for a sequel in some ways, but it was still... There are many. (laughs) Oh, there are many, and I don't... And none of them are any good. (laughs) No. (laughs) So we won't even get into those. But yeah, they kind of... And this came from a novel. Mm -hmm. And from what I heard, that that the original novel guy wasn't too crazy about this adaptation. But did you ever get a chance to read the, uh, the original novel? No, I have not actually had a chance to read the original novel. Um, okay. It's been something I've been looking really, I've been wanting to do. Uh, there's a, there's a, I have a whole list of horror novels that I really would like to get into that I like that movies are based on, but I just haven't really gotten around to a lot of them yet. Um, but this is definitely on the list. And okay. Going back to something you had mentioned about the ending mm-hmm. and how the ending is kind of like a lighter ending than a lot of other werewolf films, especially at the time. I mean, you can compare it directly to American Werewolf in London. Sure. Which for as much as the howling takes from the Wolfman, American werewolf in London, the ending is directly related to the ending of the Wolfman. That's a great point. The somber moment with the main character dying after struggling through this and everyone realizing he was telling the truth the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the case of uh, the Wolfman, uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s character. And in the case of American werewolf in London, Oh, uh, uh Naughton? David Naughton's character. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is probably one of the later endings I've ever seen to a werewolf film that wasn't specifically like a comedy, like Teen Wolf or anything like that. This definitely leaned a bit more into the comedy than American Werewolf in London did. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them definitely had their comedic elements. Um, but I think overall, even though it, it, it's sort of interesting because I think at the same time, this is both the lighter and the darker film. Mm-hmm. Because it's lighter in certain places, but it also deals with a lot heavier stuff, like Eddie Quist being a rapist and a murderer, right? Who tries to do that to Karen, and then the conversation they have when she throws acid on his face. Um, mm-hmm. It deals with a lot heavier stuff than American Werewolf in London does, but at the same time, it also can be a lot lighter. Totally, especially that that intro scene. I mean, that gets you. I mean, with the whole in the in the porno theater. And uh, or the porno shop or whatever they uh, yeah, because I mean, they're they're basically watching a gang rape on, on screen and everything. So, yeah, that they definitely get into uh, darker things in many ways, as you said. But, yeah, you brought up a great point about the actual um, for the howling. There is no one werewolf, you know, because and most werewolf movies, there's the one protagonist and there's not really that in, in this film. Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting in that way as well, because like. In both Wolfman and American Werewolf in London, it follows the one character who's trying to sort of live with being a werewolf. Exactly. And both of them turn fairly early in the movie. In this film, you have the one character who doesn't turn till the end of the film, but mm-hmm. is trying to survive all this nonsense throughout the film. And it's just two completely different sort of tones that it sets and two different sort of plots that it tries to follow. Even though this film likes to sort of make its references to the Wolfman 
as I've mentioned in the past couple of minutes, there's actually mm-hmm. a lot that American Werewolf in London has in common with the Wolfman that the Howling doesn't. That's right. That's right. One of the best scenes in the film for me is is Dick Miller because he's uh, the resident Joe Dante guy. Um, when he's kind of has, he always has like a fun like five minutes in every Joe Dante movie, and this is when he kind of quickly gives all of the lore in the um, you know the Wolfman saga when he's giving the book uh, mm-hmm. to them. So that that's great. How did you feel about like D Wallace's performance in this? Because she is the star. I, I thought her performance was was great, and I it's one of those films where even though she's the star, she's not in it for most of the film. No. <laughs> um, there's the entire middle section where she's just out of it, um, where you have Terry going around and finding everything out. Mm-hmm. And she, Terry's the one that's really getting everything stirred up. That's whereas right. Karen is passed out in bed for like a day and a half. <laughs> that's true. And even though I think D. Wallace, especially at the very beginning and the very end of the film, the scene in the porno theater, her performance is haunting just oh, the yeah. way when she's fo- being forced to watch this gang rape scene which really sets up the film in an entirely different light than the rest of the film totally like you, you get this demented first 10 minutes and then the rest of the film is not nearly as dark but then at the very end you also see the pain in her performance when she's forced to go on her newscast and transform to try to get people to believe her and I think just the beginning and the ending scenes alone cement her performance as one that is really, really good and stands out in this movie. No, absolutely. And, you know, as you were saying, like the first 10 minutes almost feel like you're going to watch a slasher film. And even the movie poster kind of like with the with the claw marks makes you almost think that as well. You're almost not sure it's going to be a werewolf movie until much longer in the film. I would say the first 10 minutes even evoke something even darker than the slasher film. It's It, it reminds me all of something like Blue Velvet. That true that dark yeah no i agree absolutely so what are some of your final thoughts for this um like i said it's definitely my favorite of the two 1981 big budget werewolves i know there's a third one i can never remember the name that came out in mm-hmm. 81 i i think overall it has the stronger elements than american werewolf in london and i just i really enjoyed this film and it's it's definitely one of the, my favorite werewolf films of all time, probably only behind the original Universal Wolfman. Oh, I'm definitely with you there. And well, I, I'm going to put Teen Wolf in there, but that's not a traditional <laughs> one. But I do love Teen Wolf. And uh, yeah, for those for those movie buffs out there, definitely if you don't have it on DVD, get the uh, the Shoutcast or uh, the Shout Factory uh, version of, of the Howling. It'll be definitely worth it. So, as always, thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you, Brian. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.